Otherwise on SAFM. Good day, Mzansi, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Otherwise with me, Shadow Twala. You're listening to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. The show is produced by Hazel Makuzeni and Derek Fordyce is our technical producer for the day. I'm a bit froggy, but um, our contact details are 0892-102010. Email otherwise at safm.co.za. Tweets at otherwise safm or at Shadow Twilight. Now, today, on today's edition, Tuesdays usually are health days, Marion Little John is a professional nurse and midwife. Uh, she gets us up and close, up close and personal with childbirth, looking at various options available to moms, from home births to hospital births and everything in between. We then transition to understanding menopause with life coach and storyteller, Carissa Water. And you, you really need to stay tuned for this one, especially with, with Mother's Day coming up. But before we do that, can I take a little cough? Before we do that, I'd like to, I'd like to give you our lunch bite for today. Now, I get so many books, I, and I, we share a lot of books with my family and friends. So when it's downtime at the Twilight household, uh, I, I, I then want to get those um, inspirational books, those esoteric ones. So finally, with it being in my bookshelf for so long, I got to read The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari by Robin S. Sharma this Saturday. And I promise you, you'll read it over and over and over again because of its teachings. I got very inspired. But in it, I found this quote by Winston Churchill, which I thought was appropriate for us as we prepare for the election tomorrow. And here's how it goes. Sure I am that this day we are masters of our fate, that the task which has been set before us is not above our strength, that its pangs and toils are not beyond my endurance, as long as we have faith in our own cause, an unconquerable will to win, victory will not be denied us. Happy voting tomorrow, Mzanzi. Life is about being more savvy with your money, like when it comes to getting great returns on your savings. Oh, look at my little money babies, getting all nice and plump. Eugene, it's because your Nedbank step-up deposit has an interest rate that climbs every three months. I know, it's amazing, and it's linked to Prime. So if Prime goes up, your interest rate goes up. Yeah, but if Prime drops, I can move my money once a quarter. So my little money babies never stop growing. Who's your daddy? Huh? Who's your daddy? Make money babies happen with Nedbank step-up deposit. Visit any Nedbank today or call 0860-555-111. We're an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. Terms and conditions apply. Make things happen. Nedbank. Otherwise, on SAFM. So now I'd like us to welcome my guest, Marion Little-John, who's a professional nurse, midwife, and ambassador for natural birth. Marion, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Where did your passion begin for natural birth? That's a good question. I think I think after I had my own children. Did you? You know, I, I trained as a midwife at Tigerberg Hospital, mm-hmm. and I was a, a young twenty-year-old uh, in, in the midwifery ward, and was very shy and quite horrified by what I encountered there. Mm-hmm. Mostly, the what I saw as a young woman, the abuse of women, forcing women to lie on beds 
on their backs, forcing women to be subjected to what I felt was quite a torturous process. Mm. And I remember, you know, the medical students in those days used to be the, the boys. The, the boys from our matric class went off and studied medicine, and the girls from our matric <laughs> class went off and studied nursing. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the, the young male students would come in and African women would be wanting to squat on the bed mm. and push their babies out. And these students would come in and force them down onto their backs and shout at them. And, of course, there was a language problem. Nobody could understand what each the other was saying. And I was just horrified and used to... Um, tell these women to come with me and we used to go and lock ourselves in the toilet in the bathroom and um, and they would be able to do what they felt instinctively was their need. Mm-hmm. You, I'm just, I just wonder why there, there, there was that almost, um, and, and, and there wasn't an understanding for that kind of, of, of birth. For instance, I... I also had a a water birth with my yes. last child, yes. and I, I remember some of my colleagues on radio. In fact, Jeremy Mansfield had a field day to say, "Oh, she's gone back to the bush." You know, she was squatting and and she went back to the old ways of doing things. Why is it being seen as unsophisticated when you give birth like that? It's a good question, and I think we're still in the process of of understanding, um, you know, what the impact of medical technology has had on maternity care. Mm. And, you know, midwives and birth has always been a very uh, sort of fragile, tenuous process because at times of stress in the history of mankind or at times of poverty, lack of hygiene, war, women have always been at the short end of the stick mm. and so um, and have suffered in childbirth wow. and women and babies still die in childbirth in poverty stricken countries and where they don't have access to medical resources um, and I think this lends a lot of fear in the, in the public domain um, around childbirth and certainly in South Africa when the missionaries first came to and, and, and that is another thing we also don't understand, the Christianization yeah. of birth. Uh, midwives in the 17th century in Britain were not recognized in any kind of um, uh, legal body. They ha- if they were recognized as midwives, they were recognized by the church. And the reason mm. for that was so that they could say the prayers and christen the baby before mm. it died, if it died, mm. and also say prayers over the mother, which, which uh, you know, in those days was regarded as imperative because if you didn't say prayers over somebody, they were going to end up in, in hell or purgatory. Mm. Mm. So it was a Christianization that went along with, with the medicalization, Sydney in South Africa, that was the case. We had a lady, very famous midwife called Henrietta Stockdale, who brought midwifery and nursing to South Africa. And we were the first country in the world to legalize midwifery. Wow. Isn't that interesting? How long ago was this? That was in the 18, early 1800s. Wow. 
Now that, yeah. that and Britain, a couple of years later, the United Kingdom followed suit, and as you know, they have a very strong midwifery movement, Royal College of Midwives, and so on. But they, their process of legalization of midwives actually happened after South Africa. So you see, we are a forerunner in many ways in South Africa. However, just getting back to the medicalization of childbirth, as a result of the of the missionaries and nursing and midwifery becoming legal and the problems they encountered amongst the indigenous population groups, they then encouraged women to go to local hospitals as they were being built and it became the norm very quickly for a woman who was having a baby to go into a hospital and give birth there. It was, a, it, it was regarded as a much safer place for her. Very much against the culture of, 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 of the area where, or the culture of the woman who's giving birth. That's right. Especially in rural areas. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I also think of it as a little bit of imperialism, um, or medical imperialism, if you like, or Christian imperialism. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but, you know, there, there's this view from westernization that, uh, that, you know, people who live close to the ground, like those people in Africa, were, were barbarians. Mm. And you can read in the archives of any um, indigenous primitive people, you know, when the, when the, the conquerors went around, you know, and they wrote stories. Uh, it was all about the, 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 the darkest heart of Africa, you know, and the barbarians that lived there. Mm. And so they would view, have viewed anything that the local indigenous people did as, as being a little bit barbaric and would have discouraged it, including no. squatting and, and all the other traditions that, that um, y- y- you know, evolved around birth in those communities. Through this medicalization, Marianne, have we lost anything with regards to um, transference of of mother and child connection and and bonding and all of that, uh, you know, as opposed to when they give natural birth? This is a very political issue, and I think it's not not an easy one to answer. Mm. There's a lot of gains that we've made in the political arena, in, in, in the midwifery and birth sphere. Lots of gains from having access to medical equipment, mm. to medical technology. Mm. We, you know, we can't deny the benefit of a cesarean section for a woman who needs it or uh, the benefit of an ICU for a baby who needs it. The, the biggest question is, do, does a woman ever need a cesarean section? I think, should, I think there are women who do need cesarean section. If the motto of our commitment is that we save lives mm. and we do no harm, mm. then some women would die in childbirth if they didn't have access to a cesarean section. But again, you know, women dying in childbirth is associated with Poverty, malnourishment, lack of hygiene. Well, that was going to be that was going to be my question. That yeah. you eventually need a cesarean section because from your early uh, trimester of, of 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 pregnancy, even let's possibly even talk about before, but yeah. from you're not getting proper care, yeah. and and there's very little education about yeah. the pregnancy itself. Because yeah. I think if we start caring at that point, then um, hopefully all the children and the moms stay alive you know I mean a good example to to talk about is a, a 
little girl who's grown up in an impoverished area like Sudan or Somalia has never has had maybe kwashiorkor or marasmus as a child has managed to survive yeah. but has ended up with a contracted bone structure okay. because she was malnourished then she gets married off to one of the local men from an adjoining tribe at the age of 14 mm. and falls pregnant mm. there's just there's just no ways that her body can can accommodate and push out a baby that's larger mm. than her frame. Mm. And so she either she ends up dying or the baby dies or, baby or, dies. or she manages to get to a hospital, but she may have something, uh, have damaged something which we call vesicovaginal fistula. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a doctor in Australia who's actually opened a hospital in Addis Ababa in... Um, Ethiopia to repair vesicovaginal fistula. So, but again, it comes back to malnutrition. It comes back to poverty. It comes back to not being cared for as a young baby girl and young baby child. You did um, mention that it is a political discussion we're having. I think it is. more than yeah, I you, think you can't avoid political. it. You can't avoid it. No. But but I'm happy that you are doing something about it. You are an ambassador of note and, and, and you are giving workshops and this is where I'd like to I'd like us to start discussing there's a smoggers board of options out there, of birth options, but you give uh, workshops to who? Well, I started off giving antenatal education classes and birth workshops to women, to pregnant parents, actually. And um, I've been doing that for about 15 years mm. and have found it very, very rewarding and successful because I found that a very, very small percentage of people who went through my classes actually ended up needing to have a cesarean section. Mm. And if you're looking at the statistics in South Africa at the moment, you're probably looking at about a, cesarean, a national cesarean rate of 30%. And in my practice, my cesarean rate is probably less than 10%. So one out of 10 clients in a class would, would need to have a cesarean section. Now, I, I just wonder um, why very few people have the kind of knowledge that you have or have had access to it. And uh, as we're talking, I'm thinking you're talking about your practice, so it's, it's a few people would probably afford to, to get your services um, and, and would probably be nearer to your services. Hello? How how do we how do we make sure that the the kind of workshops you give the kind of workshops you give are, are accessible to everyone around the country or an educational drive through clinics etc et happens with regards to just the sort of uh, the sort of option open to one who is planning I don't know if people still plan to have babies who is planning to 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 fall pregnant. It's a good question. In, in, in the last 
few years, I've been shifting my focus, and it's not because I shifted my focus, actually because people started asking for me to do workshops with doulas and other midwives. And I think that's, for me, that is a place where I can impart Mm. the knowledge that I have to people who are working in the field because I can only deal with 10 pregnant parents at one time, but if there are 10 midwives who have this knowledge and who can share it with all their clients and all in all the different midwife obstetric units and the hospitals, then we're beginning to make um, some inroads into the lack of education in the public. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's some interesting things that one can talk about here too. That, for instance, the discovery of plastic. Discovery of? Plastic. Yes. Has made a huge, has had a huge impact and made phenomenal changes in the medical arena. If you think of all the things that are used these days, um, plastics are used in needles to put in a vein. Plastics are used in drip equipment. Mm. We used to have glass bottles if we were infusing uh, fluid into a person's veins. Mm. We used to have a glass bottle and we used to have to sterilize that glass bottle, etc., mm. etc. Now we have a piece of plastic mm. with sterile fluid in it. When we finished, we throw it away. Um, we have plastic catheters. We have uh, all the plastic te- technology that uh, for instance, the monitoring equipment of the baby mm-hmm. in the womb while the mother's in labor, that's all plastic equipment and electronic, of course, but mm-hmm. it's housed in plastic casing. So um, plastic, plastic gloves, you know, there's been huge benefits by having um, um, access to technology, but the other thing is that there's there's a huge there, there comes a huge dependency and it then becomes a pharmaceutical way of controlling. So actually, all the hospitals who are using plastics are now dependent on pharmaceutical companies and they're making a lot of money. Well, yeah, we 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 know that, but I'm I'm, I'm you know. But the, re- the money is then what drives the hospitals. Mm. What drives the medical system, and the public are none the wiser. They're just dependent on the system for what they believe to be, you know, the right medical care for them. So what I'm saying is that there is now, as a result of this change in technology, a huge pharmaceutical money-driven system Mm -hmm. which underpins every single private and public hospital in the country. Well, we, I'm, I'm sure by educating more people, then we help people make informed decisions about what services they deserve and what services they want and, and what options they have. And I, I think through what we are talking about now and through people understanding what their options are, um, you know, at least we can save a few people from from not being victims, but from being abused through the Absolutely. system. Through the you're, system. You're 100% right. And I, I do think you, the changes need to be driven by the public. Yes, yes. That the, once the public become aware that there are choices, that they have choices, then they can say, hang on a minute, 
can I just ask another question when they're in the hospital? You know, is this absolutely necessary? Do we need to do this? The problem is that, you know, once you once you step into a hospital, you are stepping into a territory that is not your own. Mm. And the doctors and the midwives and the, the, the staff who work in the hospital, it's actually their territory. And so unconsciously they have the power. It's very difficult for a mum in labour to to start campaigning for what she wants <laughs> when she's at the receiving end of a, of, of plastic mm, mm. and care. And, and but if she can set about in the in the pregnancy before she ever sets foot in a hospital, working out you know what are the choices and what are her options and what would she like and what wouldn't she like and and employ around her a team of people who will be true to their word. But it, it's it's going to be a long road, Shadow. Well, we, we must walk it, though. It's we not must, going to happen overnight. We must walk it, though, and, and, and educate as many people as we, as we can. Uh, what about the risks, though, of home births? Because, you know, we talk about as, as soon as you're in the hospital, then... Uh, you, you, you're there for the taking, but what 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 are your alternatives? If you choose a home birth, um, and you spoke just a few minutes ago about employing the right people around you, but what about the risks that you know would would are there any in fact that would endanger a child or the mum in a, in a home birth situation? I think there are risks um, to to having a home birth. There's just recently in Holland and in Canada and in the United Kingdom, they've done a large number of studies on uh, the safety of home birth versus safety of being in a hospital. And there are some studies who've come out and said it's as safe as a hospital birth. Mm. And there are some other studies that have come out, come out have said that it's less safe and more babies will end up in an ICU from um, with home birth as compared to women who give birth in the hospital. I personally, I love home birth. Um, I was born at home. My three sons were born at home. My mother was born at home, and all her grandmothers and great-grandmothers and so on were born at home. My grandmother was a premature baby, weighed something like 1.2 kilograms and was raised in a shoebox with a pipette. So, you know, there's... there's, That's amazing. um, Yeah, babies did survive with the right kind of care, uh, even before the age of plastic. Depending on the environment as well, though. But I'm I'm also wanting to refer to... You know, I remember when when I was little... Um, nurses and midwives would come into the township. I yes. remember them doing house calls yes. in the township yes. to look and, and assist uh, yes. women who, and moms who were giving yes. birth because the clinics worked like that. Yes. What happened to that system? Yes, it's, uh, th- th- that system was phased out by the government in the 1980s because mm-hmm. I remember having a midwife for my last my first child in the 1981 mm-hmm. and I employed one of those midwives. The Cape Flats was full of midwives, mm-hmm. domiciliary midwives who've practiced in their areas and walked 
or bicycles to their clients' homes. In fact, you know, when I close my eyes, I can still smell them. Yes. <laughs> because they, they, they came, they were very clean and clinically dressed and, yes. and, and smelt of almost, um, um, surgical spirits. Surgical spirits, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. That is so amazing. I just had a whiff of them now. Wow. Okay. Yeah, uh, they phased them out, and she was one of the last midwives. And also there, I'm fascinated. I mean, a lot of them, those midwives have died, but there must be some of them who are still alive. And she had assisted about, I asked her once, how many women had she assisted? She'd assisted about 4,000 women in their homes to give birth. And she said she'd never lost a mother. Marianne, will you please stay on the line with us, please? Because um, there's a lot to talk about. We just need to take uh, news headlines. In a bit, I'll be back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne Liljohn. Uh, it's time for news headlines with Utsile Sako. Shadow in the headlines, about 2,000 SANDF members assigned to guard and patrol voting stations will assist police in maintaining law and order tomorrow during the election. Police spokesperson Solomon Makhale says the police's safety operational plan is being implemented. The Oscar Pistorius murder trial has been postponed to Thursday. The last witness to testify today was one of Pistorius's neighbours, Rika Motswani. And at least 30 Syrian soldiers have been killed in a powerful explosion caused by a massive bomb that rebels planted in a tunnel they dug under a checkpoint. Details at 2 o'clock. Otherwise, on SAFM. Marion Littlejohn is my guest. She's an ambassador for natural birth, a professional nurse and midwife. And I, I just thought, you know, we were going to encourage people or just give people their choices of, you know, where to go and whether to have a, a gentle birth, a home birth, a water birth. But it's 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 deeper than that, I see. Marianne, we, we, we're not going to have enough time to go through all of them, but we need to give people choices. Um, and, and this is why we've invited you, and I'm sure you're going to come back to talk to us. What sort of choices are there? If, if there's a young mother, um, a young pregnant woman listening to us now or is contemplating falling pregnant, what, what should they consider? There's a whole range of choices out there. Women can choose to go to a pub private hospital with a private obstetrician or gynecologist, mm. but they must just remember that if they choose that route, the cesarean rate in most private hospitals is more than 70%. Mm-hmm. Why so? Here I'm going to become <laughs> very political. Don't hold back, Marianne. Don't, I thought you were gone. <laughs> Don't hold back. Just why so? I mean, you've got you a know, you've got a fixed percentage, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, is it? Do they work towards eventually getting as many cesareans as possible because of how much they cost? Well, I, the cesarean section is the most performed operation in the private hospital system. It makes the most money for the private hospital system. The other reason is that an obstetrician in private practice, in order to make enough money to pay his insurance and to sustain a lifestyle which he feels he deserves, he has to earn an awful lot of money. Now, I as a midwife um, cannot be up at night 
for more mm. than twice a week, probably. Mm. And that is about the, the, the quota of clients that I can take on in one month, maybe six to eight clients in a month. That's on average. But um, in order to earn enough money, a doctor has to take on perhaps 20 clients a month. Now, he can't... He can't stay a human being and be normal if he's up every night, 20 nights in a row. So um, so the cesarean is like a sausage-making factory. Get them well, out there quickly. It's a way of managing his, his quota. It's a way of managing the system. The other thing is that, you know, the training of, of a, a, an obstetrician, it's a training around pathology. So he is trained to manage risk in a pregnant woman and he's not trained to do normal birth or to perceive a woman as being capable of giving birth normally and so when he sees a woman he can't help it he's trained to perceive risk and sometimes risk can be projected but there's there's also this side and and and, and Derek my technical producer has just reminded me there's also a side of moms demanding for for other reasons not to have vaginal births they they prefer it to stay intact and and you know um hopefully just have a little tiny scar uh to 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 look the to look you know to continue to look beautiful there are a very small percentage of there is a very small percentage of women who will request a cesarean section They've done a survey recently in South Africa and they found that most women don't wish to have a cesarean section. So a lot of women are ending up with cesarean sections that, cesarean sections that they didn't wish for. And I can testify to that in my own practice. I see quite a large number of my clients are people who have had cesarean sections and now wish to have a natural birth. Because women don't realize the consequences of having a cesarean section that is unnecessary. It's almost as if that, well, first of all, it's a huge physical trauma. It interferes with the bonding and the first hour of attachment between the mother and baby. It takes her six weeks to recover. Some women never recover fully and continue to have problems. And more importantly, they feel so awful. And they've got to handle their baby, they're trying to breastfeed, and they just feel so awful. And so they want to avoid having a repeat of that kind There's of There's a name for that. There's a name for that postnatal depression. That's right. And you give more That's tablets right. to them and they're okay. Yeah, and much more women have postnatal depression after a cesarean section than after a normal birth. I just want to refer a little bit here to probably the most important reason, and it's a long-term reason why I believe so strongly that women, as far as possible, should have a natural birth. And that is that natural birth is the one time in a woman's life when she will receive a release of oxytocin and endorphins in her body that are higher, a higher release than at any other time in her life. And what do they do for you? Particularly after the birth of the baby. And oxytocin is, has been called the hormone of love. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy. It makes us feel relaxed. Mm. It also makes us feel connected 
to other people. Mm. And it helps in the lovemaking. When we make love with another person, we release a lot of oxytocin and endorphins. And it's the same with birth. We receive and release the biggest bolus of oxytocin that a human being can ever experience when a woman gives birth vaginally. I must say, um, Marianne, may I ask what you're doing next week, Tuesday, because I would really like us to continue this. There is so much we unpacked. I didn't think we would come to this time without um, just listing what's available out there and how one does and maybe talking about your course. But I see that there are a lot of underlying issues and I'd like to talk more about midwives and, and you know, how, how we can integrate them into this whole process. So are you happy to come in next week and chat to us again? One o'clock, same time. Same time. Love to. I'm going to write it in my diary. Thank you so much for your time. The most interesting, and I really, I know a lot of people may disagree with us. I want to give them an opportunity as well to engage you next week because a lot of uh, Guyanese will, will probably be upset with some of the things we've said. Thank you very much, Shadow, for the opportunity. Thank you, Marianne. You take care. Marianne Little John. Absolutely amazing. Let's tune in again next week and, and, and chat to her. And I'm hoping if she has the time, she can come into the studio so that we can maybe have a chat and have some obstetricians joining us and, and, and talking to her so that it makes sense and we know what choices to make. Okay. Um, Carissa Buota joins us after this to talk about understanding the transition of menopause. Hi, I'm Ezra Ndwandwe, the founder of The Big Break Legacy. Want to find out how to start a business or how to run a successful business? Learn how to be that successful entrepreneur? Tune in to Money Makers on Afternoon Talk every Wednesday between 2.30 and 3 p.m. This is when Marcellus and you all are listening to and enjoying SAFM. Stay with us. Otherwise, on SAFM. Teresa Bors is a coach, a storyteller, and educator with a particular interest in personal development for women through understanding the menstrual cycle, the transition to menopause, and feminine intuition. That's a lot, Carissa. Welcome to Otherwise. Thank you very much. <laughs> How do you become a storyteller in, in such an intimate um, situation? <laughs> well... Uh, let me tell you about how I got involved with um, with this topic uh, because it's actually a story that that inspired me to to explore this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was much younger, I, I struggled a lot with with my menstrual cycle, and I, I I just stopped taking all the stuff the doctors were giving me, and I listened, started listening to my body. And through that process, I really healed all the, the, the pain I had. And then I started running uh, small workshops around the menstrual cycle to help other women. I was, you know, it wasn't my job. I mean, I was an academic at that time. And um, and then the women started asking me, um, but what about menopause? And I didn't know anything about menopause. I was in my 40s, and I started researching. And, and as I started researching, I found you know, I just find menopause is like a treasure trove of wonderful things mm. uh, that ha- that happens to women. And I thought, why 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 does nobody tell us that this, that this transition is is one of the most important transitions for women uh, psychospiritually? 
And then I found um, Leslie Kenton's very well-known book, um, Passage to Power, and where she, she, you know, really explores the science of, of menopause, but then also the the psychospiritual aspect. And then in that uh, chapter, she uses the story of the handless maiden. Handless as, um, maiden. Yeah, the handless maiden mm-hmm. as um, as a metaphor for 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 you know what women feel like and and uh, in that transition. And then I started, you know, really studying the story, and I found, you know, these these old grim stories. They are wisdom tales, you know. They come from far away, long ago, where women still had kind of an inner instinctual knowledge of the feminine and the rites of passage of women. When women run with the wolves. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> now you, you mentioned something. You said you started listening to your body. Now, that's a very interesting thing. How do you start listening to your body, uh, and, and what do you hear? Well, um, you know, especially with women, um, our bodies, and especially our womb, is really our source of inner guidance. Uh, you know, Dr. Christina Northrop, in her book, uh, Women's Wisdom, Women's Bodies, uh, she's a very famous gynecologist. She always says that if any woman comes to see her with any problem, any gynecological problem, after they've talked about, you know, the symptoms, etc., she always asks, and what is happening in your life? Mm -hmm. And so any symptom in our womb is always related to something that's, it's always telling us something uh, about what's happening in our lives. So that's the engine room. Absolutely. You know, we are cyclical beings. We are rhythmical, cyclical beings. And uh, we are constantly changing. We are different people at different times of our cycle. And especially the premenstrual stage, all that anger and irritation and stuff that comes up is actually telling us something about um, our, uh, our boundaries. So if you say, how do I listen to my body? Say that irritation or that pain come up at your premenstrual time. You will then sit and just be with your body. Put your hand there and and reflect. What is actually happening in my life? Um, how does this relate to something that's happening in my life? And feel into it. And as you feel, images, insights, understanding will come up. And you might see, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just giving, giving, giving out there. I'm never resting. I'm never giving something to myself. And then you might decide to change that. Carissa, are you saying to me every time once a month, um, ideally women should not be doing what they do for the rest of the month? So for those, for, the, for those four days, ideally, stay home. Or, or be in a quiet space, or be in a in a uh, kind of in a in a looking space, if you like. Yes. Well, you know, we we can't all you know take time off, but it's 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 how we do things. So when I do my my menstrual cycle workshops, I talk about embodied time management. So that would mean uh, we've got these two sides to the cycle, the time when we're out there and the time when we're more in, in the, intuition, uh, in the premenstrual and 
uh, and menstruating phase. So it would just mean that you will take our time a little bit more. You will rearrange your your schedule that mm-hmm. it's not so busy at that time. You will let me give you an example. Well, let me just say one thing. Christina Northrup says it's absolutely essential to rest when you're menstruating because a lot is happening in your body, mm-hmm. and it's our cycles is designed for us to be to live a sustainable life so in that resting you are recharging your battery you're recharging your soul is it when you commune with the universe is the universe trying to tell you something at that time well you are much closer to your to, to your spiritual self to your intuition so it's a time for um for your 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 premenstrual time is to to understand where are you overextending yourself, what is your anger saying to you? So you have to reflect and to let go. And your menstruation time is a time to just allow whatever you need to let go, to let go of that, and then to be open, because the, your skin between your soul and your body is thin at that time. So it's really. I, yeah, so it's a very ideal time to 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 just commune with with something deeper and something higher. And that's during your menstrual cycle. Mm. Now, what stories do you tell around and educate about around menopause? Okay, so so um, with the men, let me just go back to the menstrual cycle. I work with the story of Asalisa, uh, this 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 girl that has this little doll in her pocket. And this doll tells her what to do. And she has to go to, to the world of Baba Yaga, uh, the underworld. And this, this little dolly tells her, go right, go left, go up, go down. And, and so it's a story about your intuition. The story that I use with, with, the, um, with menopause uh, is, is the handless maiden. And it's a very long story, but it's... In a nutshell, it's about a, 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 a young woman who, who loses her hands. Her father has to cut off her hands. And she wanders out into the world, handless. Mm. And then a king meets her, and he falls in love with her. And he says, come, come to my kingdom. I will, I will craft you the most beautiful silver hands, and you can be my wife. And so she marries him. And she has a child, but she has silver hands. And then he leaves. He has to go to war, and, and lots of things happen. And once again, she has to leave the castle. And she has to wander uh, out into the world. And then she finds a little forest and a little um, cottage in a forest, and she stays there under the guidance of an angel. And then she actually has to grow her hands back. And at first, they look like baby hands. And then they look like, like uh, um, young girls' hands. And eventually, they become woman hands. And in the meantime, her husband has been looking for her and her, the king. Mm-hmm. And he wanders through the, uh, through the forest. He looks for, uh, he looks he tries to find her, it takes seven years, and at last he finds her, 
but he doesn't recognize her because now mm. she's got hands. Mm. Mm. And then she says to him, through my care and through my dreams and through my silence, these hands have grown back. Mm. I am no longer the handless maiden you once knew. Carissa, you did say it was a long story and we have run out of time, but you know, I, I think you, you do run six day courses and we're going to give, have you got a website? Uh, no, but I can give my email. Give your email please. It's kbwitter mm-hmm. at tiscali. At tiscali. Yeah, yes. dot co.za. Fantastic. I think, um, people who are interested in hearing that story will, 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 will call, but thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for making us understand the transition to menopause. Okay. Through storytelling. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Okay. Thank you. Bye. That's Carissa Borta, kborta at tascali.co.za. We're going to take a piece of music now. I don't know why you think that you could help me when you couldn't get by by yourself. And I don't know who would ever want to tell the seam of someone's dream. Baby, it's fine. You said that we should just be friends while I came up with that line. And I'm sure that it's for the best. If you ever change your mind, don't hold your breath. Because you may not believe. Baby, I'm relieved When you said goodbye Oh, it is a beautiful day. Music by Michael Bublé. I love him. So, uh, brings it brings us to uh, time for Sharp Sharp.